On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Oliver O'Donovan about moral theology. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is moral theology? Why has it fallen in hard times? Why might American evangelicals especially struggle with certain concepts related to this? What are views on transhumanism and other related moral questions such as synthetic therapy and enhancement? Is there a distinctively Christian vision? What should we think about medical advancements like surrogacy and synthetic gametes and embryos? Are these ethical in any sense? Are these Christian in any sense? Why was politics separated from theology at one point and should we seek to repair this divide? And a ton more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are an institution that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking, we have particular virtues in mind. So we've really tried to both build, inhabit, and encourage a sort of intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So when we say those things, we, we mean both a rigorous analytical approach to thinking where we, we find the most serious arguments that you can find and we trace them to their conclusions. We find all the best source material that you can get your hands on. We find the most robust engagements and arguments that are out there. But we do it with a particular set of virtues in mind as well, like charity and curiosity, and also that just cheerful confessionalism. So when we think about confessionalism, we think that you shouldn't just be angry about everything. You should be happy about the truths that you get to confess. There should be a way of inhabiting this confession that really just breeds kindness, uh, breeds um, joy, and breeds happiness, and we really want to exude that. So we don't want to have a confessionalism that is dry, that is arid, uh, that is arrogant, that is stringent. We want a confessionalism that is joyous and full of of cheer. So yeah, that's, that's that on uh, the Linden Lyceum. Now, today I am thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Oliver O'Donovan. So uh, I find Dr. O'Donovan as one of the most stimulating thinkers that I've ever read in my life. Um, and he shares a name, Oliver, with also one of the greatest theologians that I've, I've been shaped by in Oliver Crisp. I think more than any theologian, probably, he's really shaped my theological imagination for the better. I think of Oliver, anybody named Oliver must be a good theologian or a good uh, a resource. So I'm looking forward to talking to Dr. O'Donovan. If you don't know him, I mean, you should. He's he's written all sorts of incredibly important volumes, and we're going to talk about some some of them today, but we're also just going to talk a little bit more broadly about ethics in general as well. Um, so this is going to be a lot of fun. So Dr. O'Donovan, before we get started, maybe tell me a little bit about uh, what you're doing now, uh, what what occupies most of your time. And then what was it that drew you to thinking deeply about various ethical topics? Um, I know you've written books on political uh, theology. Uh, you've written books on uh, things related to just ethics in general. So what was it? Was it something in, in your, your uh, studies initially early on at university that spurred this or, or something else? Well, as for what I do at the moment, I devote myself to the very busy uh, task of being retired, and retired for some time. My teacher, Paul Ramsey, 
used to say, uh, I'll never retire again. I haven't had a moment free since I did it. And uh, that's the experience of life I'm going through at the moment. I spent my career uh, teaching theological ethics um, mainly. Um, I taught in Oxford for a while and then finished off in Edinburgh. Um, uh, that was after a, an initial few years um, on the other side of the Atlantic in Toronto. I entered ethics as a theologian and I've practiced it as a theologian. Um, which is why I, on the whole, prefer the name moral theology to describe what I do to Christian ethics, but substantially there is nothing much to choose. And my concern has always been the risk of a disconnection uh, between the way believers think about their faith, their theology, their profession, their understanding of scripture, their understanding of sacred history, and then the way they go about thinking about their lives within the context of the world, in which the concepts of their faith often seem to just disappear and get replaced with whatever concepts at a hand in the current discussion within the world. And that makes, on the one hand, for a sort of empty, speculative type of faith, and uh, a rather flaccid practical witness. And uh, my perception of my task has always been to make these two engage. That's helpful. So I want to know, in your mind, has moral theology fallen on hard times in the contemporary period? And if it has... Because it seems to me, I look at American evangelicals and there seems to be a lack of what you would call moral theology or reflection on these sort of topics. Is there a reason that they might seem to struggle with this? And I mentioned American evangelicals just because that's my context. That's where most of the people who are listening uh, are from. We do have listeners who are, are from other places, but I think by and large that is the, the dominant stream of people who are listening to us. When you go into the history of the discipline of moral theology, you begin to think that it has never been anything but on hard times. Uh, it's a kind of odd man out in the theological discipline uh, right through. Um, its status always in question, its scope very ill-defined. Um, and one has various different models. If you spoke about moral theology to one of the church fathers, they wouldn't know what you were talking about. They simply spoke about sacred teaching, and they included all their moral reflection and all their doctrinal reflection, all in a sort of single sweep. In the modern world, we divide things up. And so this is how this part of the task has become divided. But many theologians don't see the point of it. And um, some moralists don't see the point of it. And so the teaching of the churches has been erratic and, and, and odd in this respect. Most theological seminaries will have some ethics on their syllabus. There was a period when the Church of England, in the middle of the last century, banned ethics from its theological seminary. 
Um, and then it made it compulsory. That um, about face does something to show you the confusion in which um, Christians often get over this subject. Its odd man, its character as an odd man out, is due to the fact, I think, that it doesn't have a totally distinctive field. If I'm studying um, Egyptology, then I know what my material is. <clears throat> um, I have artifacts from ancient Egypt, I have texts from ancient Egypt, uh, and I'm the expert on those. And somebody comes along with a great knowledge of Assyriology, and I'm the expert on Egyptology, and he or she is the expert on Assyriology. And we define ourselves by that little chunk of material that we have studied and know about. Now, moral theology is, on the one hand, it doesn't have a special chunk of material, things that belong to it. On the other hand, it reaches out and tries to claim everything. It wants to talk about everything, about medicine, about politics, uh, um, uh, about thoughts of the heart, and so on. Um, and so the Academy wonders, well, what's it doing? Where do we classify it? How do we fit it in? Um, there are elements of philosophy. There are elements of theology. Uh, and here is perhaps the most difficult feature about it, it's a discipline that accompanies the practical thought of faith. It describes it, but describes it from the inside, practicing it, not as an outside observer like a psychology or sociology might describe the, the behavior of Christians or the constitution of Christian communities and how they're structured and so on, but as those living in the life of faith, and seeks to give coherence to that practical undertaking of living before God um, that believers claim to undertake, to be of service in that way. It deliberates uh, the future, what we should do, what attitudes we should take. It reflects on what uh, reality can teach you. So... One question that I think I see oftentimes come up in relation to moral theology is the question related to different views on transhumanism, on genetic therapy and enhancement. And I'm wondering, is there a distinctively Christian vision in any sense of these sort of um, topics? I mean, I don't know. Is it a case-by-case -case sort of thing, or are there ways that we should approach that as Christians, and certain questions that we should ask when engaging those sort of uh, areas? Yeah, the, the heart of the problem they pose to us is how we understand what it is to be a human being, made in the image of God, serving God, called to serve God. And the heart of the discussion about these topics is what kind of understanding of the human being they expect us to sign up to, and whether, as Christians, we can sign up to them. Thinking about the Christian doctrine of man, uh, I use the term in its old-fashioned generic sense, um, is a major task, it seems to me, of moral theology. And to be able to think out from that into what different practices imply 
about the understanding of man. My sense of that whole area of discussion, which has gained the name transhumanism, is that it's a kind of thought experiment conducted with human being, inviting us to say, suppose we conceived ourselves to the ultimate degree as a technological experiment and tried to rethink ourselves as a technological experiment. What, uh, where might we get? And I think a Christian is bound to ask, um, how can such a thought experiment be conducted in the light of what we believe about God's relationship to man, his creative power, um, his gift of humanity as a way of being for us. And time and time again, I think the issues turn on a major question, a fundamental major question about what being a human being is, how being a human being comes about, uh, what it means to say our lives are given us by God, uh, and how we can give substance to that in the way we view ourselves, our bodies, and one another. And um, so, yes, I think there are very distinctive Christian approaches um, to these topics, uh, which may not always play out in sort of particular positional answers. They may sometimes. So you, you're, I don't know how many years ago you wrote Begotten Not Made, um, but you've got the new volume coming out being republished with uh, Davenant Press, which I, I'm thrilled to see that. And I, I think what Matthew Lee Anderson, I think he has an introduction or something in the volume as well. Uh, what should we think about medical advancements like surrogacy, like synthetic gametes and embryos? I, I mean, are these, are these ethical? Because obviously they've become far more commonplace. Um, I think, I mean, when I was a kid, I would have never had a concept for a surrogate pregnancy, but now it seems like that's pretty commonplace where it's um, oftentimes you'll, you'll see it. It's not strange. Um, and especially the sort of synthetic or different sort of pregnancies that are created um, where you, uh, what is it, uh, IVF? Um, those practices have become much more commonplace. So is there a Christian way to think about these things? And I know these can be deeply personal for families who've struggled with infertility um, and they they desire to have uh, children. Uh, so I know I, I want to treat this with the, the right and proper care, but I, I am curious, is there a Christian way to think about it or is there just a, a blanket um, statement, if we can do it, then we should? No, there are two, in a sense, there are too many things to think about in these issues. I, I wrote that book um, 40 years ago now, as you rightly comment, when the techniques were still very new and we were trying to think through their implications, in a sense, for the first time. Uh, and I'd be pleased that the kinds of questions I raised about this development have been helpful to many Christians trying to think about the questions more deeply and that um, uh, um, the Davenant people have wanted to um, have this in circulation again and made available 
again, and that's encouraging to me. It is, in a way, an old-fashioned book because, inevitably, it comes out of a, an earlier state of affairs. At the same time, I tried to identify the what seemed to me the fundamental issue, which is whether we view our children as begotten or made. Uh, that is to say, the way in which we can turn them into a project, uh, something we do, uh, something we accomplish to satisfy our own um, urge to build our lives or whatever, or whether we can encounter our children as, in an important sense, apart from us, gifts, persons over against us, and how we can do that, and what the implications might be. And they're not always simple. I mean, there are too many questions, in a way, to ask. People ask, quite naturally, is this sort of practice moral? Is it ethical? Um, And they may be asking three or four different questions. They may want to ask, is it a good overall that this has happened? Uh, They may want to ask... Were those who made it happen, took the initial pioneering steps, were they acting responsibly to future generations or were they not? Uh, Or they may be asking, is this something that I ought to be prepared to be willing to participate in, coming from where I am, coming from my commitments, particularly commitments of faith? And those are different questions, and the answers to them need to be sorted out. And there are, of course, a number of different techniques. Um, We tend to see these questions coming at us globally, like um, big heavy storm clouds coming across the sky. And we won't really know what to think about them until we've been able to get inside them and look at the water drops in those clouds. Uh, Surrogacy poses a quite particular set of problems, which are not the same as other problems posed by other techniques which we may perhaps um, put together with it. It has has special features. Um, it um, It presents us with a kind of moral distance between the origins of the genetic material which, out of which a new child is born and the personal relationships that the child has with the parents. Now, what we should think about that is not immediately apparent, um, but that there is something quite serious to be thought about. Whether as persons we respect each other as also genetic is also very important. And one can't simply do what I think the temptation is, uh, which is to dismiss the problem by saying, well, that is merely at the genetic level, or whatever. There is no mere level in the coming to be of a human being, a new individual person before God. And that is something we've got to uh, get inside and think about, particularly if such questions ever come near to us uh, in person. So I'm thinking here about this, and I I just, I think the typical question that might come up is, what is the relevant 
difference between this distance between these things. So let's, I guess, take an example. Um, someone who, for whatever reason, is unable to carry their child and they enlist, let's say, their sister to carry the child for them. Is there a moral implication that we would say, well, then you're you're still close to the family? family sufficiently close to the family where it is a morally justifiable thing to do or is there still something that's missing in a scenario like that that we should think is morally problematic and we should avoid that i'm glad you raised that case because it does seem to me that the question of the related donor uh, or the related surrogate is um is a particularly interesting one as opposed to the anonymous donor or the anonymous surrogate uh, who uh, one is normally uh, um, thinking about or the unrelated, at any rate, whether completely anonymous, the unrelated surrogate. Um, that is a line of thought that I think is, is potentially fruitful. I don't know where we should, one should go with it. I do think that the key problem in any case is how uh, as it were, how the parents can own at a deep emotional level their relation to the child and how the donor or surrogate can at a deep emotional level discern the relation to the child. Now it may be that the case of the, the sister or whoever um, the disowning is not so important. And yet, in, in, we don't live in great clan groups. <laughs> we live in, um, in, in, in a highly sort of individualistic society. And I would have thought it could be very difficult um, to disown the child to whom you have given birth, uh, essentially, in an, in, in an important way. These are, these are sort of probing thoughts rather than concluding thoughts. I, I, I don't want to draw at this point the line and say, that's something one should never do. Yeah. Um, I do want to say that I think one should think rather carefully about what one is doing before one goes down that line and what it will be like and what it means thereafter for the relationship of the family mm-hmm. as a whole involving all parts. That's helpful. I don't know what your thoughts are on in vitro fertilization. If you have firm, there are moral categories at play here. I know, I think Matthew Lee Anderson, one of your former students has argued, I think pretty strongly against it. Um, do you have an opinion? Or, or it's, a very interesting, it's a very interesting question in vitro fertilization, because it seems to me that some serious Christian thought has gone into imagining what would a practice of in vitro fertilization that one could totally embrace uh, without conscientious scruple look like? And then you have to ask, how far is that from the actual practice that one is actually going to be drawn into? Because I think the, one has to remember that these highly complex technological practices are clusters of practices. And... Um, the biggest issue um, in vitro fertilization arises over the question of discarding embryos. Um, I mean, that's the, 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 the major problem that has, has caused 
so much problem. And of course, the practice of discarding embryos was absolutely essential to the development of the practice experimentally. It, it couldn't have come about without massive discarding of fertilized embryos. Um, now, if a couple go down this line and say, well, we want this kind of help, what control do they have over the, the style of practice, the expectations, the understandings that will make the practice work that they participate in? And that, I think, is something, if I were in their position, I'd want to ask. Now, I do want to shift a little bit into uh, political theology um, and think through some, I guess, to begin with a little bit of a broad question here, which would be, why was politics separated from theology? And should we seek to repair this divide? Mm. All the questions about political theology, I feel like, are dynamite in our current culture, because everybody's interested mm-hmm. in it. So <laughs> yeah. we'll try to do our best to, to walk the line. Of course, of course, yes, yeah. Well, um, I think... Politics separated from theology, it's a relative separation. Uh, for the same reason that other, sub- other topics separated from theology, ethics itself, and more or less about the same time, um, because of the growth of an academy, because of the development, particularly in the 17th century, of the concept of multiple autonomous fields of study, sciences in the plural, that justified themselves within their own terms and by their own explanatory power and their own material and were not, as it were, dependent on other sciences. And uh, the first pleas, as it were, for autonomous politics come right in this context um, in the 17th century, more or less. Uh, And um, as this vision of the pluriform, the the multiversity, uh, begins to take hold of the Western world. Um, In practice, I think a sort of autonomous discipline of political science is much later than that. I mean, the idea preceded the reality by up to two centuries or thereabouts. Um, Yet all the time, the actual practice of politics, the the real politique, was felt, was seen to be, to a certain extent, autonomous. And this was shielded in various sort of doctrines about the uh, sovereign discretion of the ruler uh, and the sphere that the ruler must occupy into which um, other authorities and other concerns could not invade uh, and disturb. Um, So where are we? We are in a world where disciplines are scattered anyway. And politics and theology are only one example of a scatter of that which was once thought uh, much closer. But we're also in a world where the concern to sort of reunite and reconnect things has been very strong. And in many ways, the history of the 20th century was the history of an attempt to recover a sort of holism um, in which connections were important. 
between one line of thought and another line of thought. And uh, when the discipline of political theology, as it liked to call itself, um, came back into the forefront, one might say, of public notice in the 20th century. This was as much because of concerns on the side of politics as from concerns on the side of um, theology. Uh, those of us who work on this borderline, um, and I think it's the same for those who work on the borderline of theology and law, which is, again, not, not wholly distant from theology and politics, are aware that getting theologians interested in it is very difficult, but getting politicians and lawyers interested in it is ready. It's easy um, because you have practices, well-established professional practices, which in order to be self-critical need to relate and stretch out and, and which the, their roots in larger theological thinking are important to them. So here's another, I guess, big question. Is it moral to legislate uh, morality in any sense? I mean, does that end up corrupting morality uh, and even potentially theology itself if we seek to do these things? I think there, in, in my American context, there's lively discussion on whether we should legislate just the second table of the Ten Commandments or the first table as well, uh, and questions of, you know, what do we think about the religious nature of morality uh, and beyond. So is it moral to legislate morality? It's the main question that I'm after. Well, I, I'd like to answer that by saying there's nothing else you could possibly legislate. Uh, what would be the justification for making laws that restricted people's freedom in the service of no good whatsoever to anybody. Uh, and as soon as you've started talking about what is good for somebody uh, and what somebody needs, uh, then you started talking about morality, uh, broadly, um, but very really. Uh, and so the notion of the totally amoral law is a completely incomprehensible one. Um, the the world in which all laws are amoral is a world in which there are no laws, one might say, uh, because uh, there is no reason for any law. Um, law must have its reasons if it is to have a binding authority that people are aware of. And those reasons are just another name broadly for the moral claim of law to be obeyed. The difference precisely between law and power, is that you obey power because you have to, you obey law because you ought to, uh, in some sense. So the question is always then, which elements of our moral sensibility and our moral awareness are susceptible of intelligent legislation uh, and which are not? And there's no, you might say, there's no simple one-sentence answer to that, and if there were, whoever discovered it would be rich by now. Um, law can weaken itself. Law can damage society by trying to achieve things that might, in principle, be good in themselves and may be universally recognized as good in themselves, but are 
inappropriate for that kind of universal direction. I mean, in order to avoid all the, the, the hackneyed examples, imagine a law that required every young person, regardless of ability, to continue in full-time education at college or wherever until the age of 25. Now, whatever else this did or did not achieve and whatever other damage it did or did not achieve, um, it could only result in a widespread hatred of learning uh, in a generation that wanted to get on with its life and did not intend or wish to sit around until it was 25 studying. Um, this is a vocational matter in experience and However excellent you might think the vision of a much more educated population is, uh, you, you can't overcome that. So anyone who thinks about legislation has to learn, first of all, that law is not made to describe the kind of world you want to exist. It's not what it's for. It's a misuse of law. I wish we could get that into the heads of the constitutional lawyers who are the real idealist lawyers uh, of our time, I think. Um, and, uh, but that's a, that's a bit on the side. It's the mistake of utopianism. The contribution of law to improving the world is real, important, it's indispensable, but it's also supplementary. Uh, a law needs in the first place uh, to have enough probability of being supported in general terms by the general populace. Um, no law can rely solely for its authority on being constantly enforced um, by sanctions. Uh, any law of any kind depends on a very good deal of self-enforcement. People keeping it because they know they ought to keep it and um, that the world is better because they keep it. Uh, and then the sanctions can only come in in the marginal cases where you have defaulted uh, and so on. So uh, that is a condition, it seems to me, that always ought to obtain before you start uh, uh, making laws that will require to be sanctioned in this way. Um, and then... Laws made that affect our behavior in ways that we perceive as very foundational to them are also deeply obnoxious and will not uh, gain this kind of support. And what those ways are change culturally from period to period. And that sort of consideration is why... Um, laws about sexual identity, as it were, became abandoned widely in the last century. Um, and they're also, it's the same reason why we're especially sensitive about laws that touch religious freedom. Um, these affect people in ways we believe that external authority cannot really get a grip on them. It can only torture them, it can't, it can't help them. Um, it lacks that power. Other things have to work. If people are to be in some better, have a better religion or a 
better sexuality than they have. It can't be done that way. We don't believe it can be done that way. And so using law in that sort of style is um, simply misusing it. Um, so there's always going to be a dichotomy in law between that which is required of us and will be externally enforced to a degree and that which must be internally respected. The difference that Paul described as the law engraved on stone tablets and the law engraved on the heart. And law must have that difference. And we, are, we expect of one another and we look for one another for the law written on the heart. For we, we don't only expect what the law absolutely requires of each other. When we do, then we treat each other as aliens in some important sense. To care for anybody is to care that that person should realise more than the law requires to be realised. And uh, that is why not only law, but also moral education has an important role in shaping society. And since we're talking particularly to members of churches, I think the question of whether the churches have really grasped that metal is a very major one. So along these lines, I want to ask how political discourse that begins with the kingdom of God can illumine topics of theology. Uh, I know, I don't know how many years it's been since you wrote The Desire of the Nations, but that's also another one of those books Mm -hmm. that has been, I think, um, incredibly influential and important for shaping uh, the right sort of questions to be asked when we come to these sort of topics. So I'd love to hear you cash out that sort of idea with the kingdom of God. Well, the concept of politi- concepts of politics have been shaped by the concepts of theology and vice versa from the very outset. And in a sense, one might say neither um, could exist without the other in their origins. So they continue to shed light on how they're used in each context. I pursued the desire of the nations by taking up the concept of king, kingship, um, a broad, broadly understood to, to mean such things as governmental sovereignty, um, the sort of things we claim for our nation states, the sorts of uh, ways in which we understand government to be possible, and so on. Um, another concept that has linked politics and theology extremely closely, and in which you really have to understand uh, how they're linked if you're to gain the benefit of talking about it for either, is law itself. Um, Law is one of those deeply um, saturated notions. It carries with it a sense of authority, duty, responsibility. It says all kinds of things theologically in the background that it's not saying up front. Um, And to appreciate the meaning of law, as the modern world finds it very difficult to do, it talks a lot about law governed states and so on, and yet has very little sense, I think, of what law means and should mean. If um, If you read the book of Deuteronomy with your eyes open to its broader political, social concerns. You see how the whole shape of Israel's political existence is determined by its vocation to be a law state. 
There is a certain sense in which Deuteronomy suggests that a real a real nation comes into existence with Israel. And it comes into existence because of a relationship with God that has been given in legislation. And it's absolutely inseparable uh, from its severe monotheism. Uh, and law and monotheism is a theme that runs right through the tradition, I think. Can, if you have a unity, coherent, all-embracing law, can you do without recognizing its source uh, in the mind of one, not many, God? And my suspicion is that the questions that vexed the ancient world about polytheism are coming alive again in our day. It sounds strange, uh, as we are inclined simply to sort of point but comment on the decline of religion and leave it at that. But the whole context of a would-be pluralist world culture, which doesn't know how to realize itself. I mean, the more, the more we talk about pluralism, the more tyrannical and monarchical we become about it. Um, the more we're dealing with the contradictions that were innate and inherent in polytheism itself. And to live under law, Deuteronomy will tell us, is to live under God, one God. So if that's the, the right concept, should Christians seek to recapture or revive sort of uh, a political setting where there is an established church? And no, that there not is... no, no, that has to, that has you, what, what I think they should seek to, what they should seek to recover that was always implicit in that and what was that really meant was a political situation in which the religious faith and convictions of the people were treated with real respect by the governmental process uh, and the importance of them to the coherence of society was recognised. Um, and that could, in many places, take the form of some form of an established uh, church in earlier stages in Europe. It, on the whole, it, it, it's not very much the obvious way in which it will go uh, in in the modern in the modern world. But the significance of religion as shaping the moral and political attitudes of the people has to be always, as it were, on the agenda of government. So how is it in our pluralist society that we get that back onto the agenda as something that should be taken seriously and given the significance that it deserves? I don't know, but it does seem to indicate the one thing that our society has not managed to do, which is how to educate its politicians. How do we achieve anything in a society where our politicians are among the least able of our practitioners, where we entrust the making of our laws and the running of our nations to people we wouldn't trust to run a primary school. 
Um, and you know that that's a problem to pose to modern democracy. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't know how to solve it, uh, but I, I, I do see the problem constantly that democracy has reached a point when the the processes of government, extremely elaborate, extremely developed, highly administrative, cannot actually any more think about the societies they're coping for. That's helpful. Uh, are there areas that you would say uh, in moral theology that you think we need more people dedicated to researching and thinking deeply about? Well, I, what I find about those who work in Christian ethics and moral theology, and what I think I often hear said about them, uh, is that there is often too much concern with the frontier and not enough concern with the tradition. Uh, Responding to contemporary problems, uh, Christian ethics accepts too much the terms on which those problems are presented and doesn't succeed in taking them back and getting the lights that the past Christian discussion of comparable problems could shed upon them. And, well, I, sometimes Christian ethicists are self-selected for their concern with mission and social outreach and getting up and being busy, uh, and that's virtue. Um, it's not a vice, it's a virtue. But sometimes also they're not as well-versed as they need to be in thinking about scripture and the tradition um, of Christian thought. Uh, So let me propose that what we need of our Christian ethicists is that they should focus much more on the common universals of human moral experience, um, in which they will find an infinite range of resources to help them in the tradition. Um, And perhaps if you want one topic, one umbrella topic which has virtually been neglected and surely ought to be very prominent and ought to gather a whole range of concerns together in a constructive way, perhaps one thinks they should be attending more to the ethics of speech. If you take the topic of speech, it opens out in very obvious ways to certain highly pressing concerns uh, we have in contemporary society about the character of political speech, for example, Um, privacy in our communications. Uh, One can't get online without all the sort of barrage of security protections that um, are up there. Freedom of expression, which is become a really neuralgic point in the Western world uh, and, as it were, fear of persecution for expressing views and joining in discussions. Um, These issues are all raised by the ethics of speech, but also that topic draw on some of the deepest perceptions of the tradition about what it means to live as human beings. Communicating with one another, communicating with God, um, 
how we articulate the good news of what God has done to one another uh, and how we give him thanks and praise. So that, there would be a topic that I could propose if um, you're eager to do some research yourself uh, in moral theology, Jordan. You take that up and see where it goes, and I think you might find it went a very long way. Excellent. Now, I, I have to ask one final thing. So we have quite a few pastors and members of the clergy who listen to the podcast, and I often hear the similar refrain of, there are so many moral questions that are being posed to them uh, at this moment, in our current cultural moment, and they continue to be uh, addressed to them, and they don't know how to answer them. Are there any resources that you would say, become very familiar with these, and these will help you to develop the right habits of mind to make wise judgments in the cases that you're presented? I think the honest honest answer is no, there aren't. Um, And there can't be. Because what we're looking for is the wisdom of the Holy Spirit for circumstances and situations which arise um, de novo. When they confront us, they confront us for the first time. Uh, As it were, there isn't a list of answers. Uh, That is absolutely certain. I mean, there are lists of mistakes, plenty of them. Um, And uh, the wrong answers are are well documented. And uh, one can, as it were, learn from them. Um, What I should say to so-and-so in such and such a situation is something that's going to have to be decided at the time. At the same time, in our preaching and in our teaching and thinking and theological study, all the time we need to be pressing the implications of what we're thinking for moral reasoning, for how we think about this, that, and the other. I would like to think that every sermon might have, however dogmatic or doctrinal its content, might have a pointer in that direction. Um, Pastors, like other people, need to be pressing, always pressing their thought thought forward also towards the practical horizon. Um, How do we live this? Um, The Puritans understood that. They, um, in their rather clumpy conceptions of how you organized a sermon, the application was always important. And though sometimes one feels their use of it was somewhat mechanical and not always uh, helpful, the example is very important. And it's important to us um, if we presume to teach Christian thought at any level uh, to say this is always uh, practical. And we can see it might be in this way and that way and that way. Awesome. Well, this has been tremendous. And in your busy retirement, do you have any writing projects that we should be on the lookout for and be excited about um, and eagerly waiting with anticipation? As there is um, a little set of Gifford lectures, which I delivered about a year ago at St. Andrews, um, called The Disappearance of Ethics. Um, is due to come out, I think, sometime next year. So if you want to watch the columns, you can watch for that. And I uh, 
I hope it may have some rewards for some people. But on the whole, I reached the age when I think um, that if what I've written so far isn't enough, it never will be, um, and uh, that uh, it must be left to um, younger people. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you for this. This has been awesome. Um, I know you've been hugely influential for me and other listeners of ours. So we, we want to say thank you uh, for the work that you've done over the decades uh, that you've dedicated your life to this. Uh, I think the Lord has really used you in a lot of ways. So just want to put that on record there that we appreciate you and we're thankful for how God has used you. Um, and for everybody who's been listening, you do need to check out Dr. O'Donovan's work. If you're not familiar with it, um, go maybe start with the, the New Davenant Press volume. I'll link to it because uh, they're republishing it for a very affordable price so that you can go purchase that um, and begin uh, thinking morally about all sorts of topics that are very relevant to our day. So thanks, Dr. O'Donovan, for the work that you've done. Everybody listening, you need to check out his work if you haven't. And we thank you all for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.